Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! I'm telling you, my spider sense is tingling. Amazing Spider-Man number 129 mint condition. Worth a thousand bucks. Comic book. No, it's not just a comic book. This is the first appearance of a Punisher. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Willow, but it's the fat signal. How do I get it to work? Willpower. Like the Green Lantern's ring. You call it comic books. That's so cute. Cute. It's very rugged and manly. Just a bit geek, huh? I think it's sweet. It must be really hard when all your friends have, like, superpowers. You must feel like Jimmy Olsen. You can't charge innocent people for saving their lives. Spider-Man does. Action is his reward. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to another Hey, Kids Comics, the podcast. I've started differentiating that we are the podcast now. Have you? Yes. In case you get us confused with Hey Kids Comics, the TV show. Yes, in fact, we should do that TV show. Or Hey Kids Comics, the motion picture. I would be totally down for that as well. Followed by Hey Kids Comics 2, The Wrath of the (laughs) Leylands. The Wrath of Mike. Yeah. (laughs) That'd be quite good. And then the search for Dad. Yeah. That would be awesome. And then the quest for peace. And then about 30 years later, they make... um, Hey Kids Comics, followed by the sequel, Hey Kids Comics, not the Wrath of Mike. <laughs> hey Kids Comics into darkness. Yeah. We'll get rebooted, will we, by somebody who doesn't understand what we were about in the first place. Or we'll just be rebooted and called Star Wars. <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. It's good to be here. In our home. In our home, yeah. Um, this week, yeah. we do have some preamble. Oh, we do, yeah. Yes. Both Mr. of us this time. Yeah, both of us, yeah. yeah. Mr. Charlie Niemeyer mm-hmm. of the Superman in the Bronze Age podcast. Of the Niemeyer clan. Of the Niemeyer clan, yes. Invited us on his show. He did. Well, um, he invited you. Well, he invited me, and then you were like, what about me? I, re- I recall this conversation going differently. <laughs> do you really? I do, yeah. <laughs> See, I recall you going, I talk to him before come on it with me that's not what I said that's exactly what you said well you're always a bit nervy when you talk to somebody new even if you have conversed with them yes however we need fear not mm-hmm. because Charlie was lovely he was a very gracious host he was and we sat down with a, him he was a co-host in his own show he was I was just going to I was just going to mention that mm-hmm. um, we sat down with him and we, we talked over Superman the movie for two hours yeah. Uh, and I actually felt a bit bad because I felt like I talked too much. You always talk too much. Over Superman the movie. And the host of the show possibly didn't get a word in. So I do apologise to Charlie for that. I felt a bit guilty about it mm-hmm. afterwards. As you should. You talk yeah. far too much. I do, I do. So, you, <laughs> But you do need to check that out because we had a ball. I, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You even enjoyed it. I did. Except the bits where we stopped and just started watching the film because it was good. Anytime Otis was on. Yeah. Otisburg. This is a little any place. <laughs> I do, I'm not having a word said against Otis. Yeah. And I have decided his surname is Berg. Yeah. I'm going with that. As you hear on the show. Yeah, so those are little tease for Superman in the Bronze Age. So you need to go and listen to that. I think it should be out right about now. Okay. So I'll go well, and, will you be listening to go this? and listen to it. I may listen back to it, but I don't like listening back to myself on shows. Fair 
Fair enough. I have to listen to this enough. You could listen to it as an excuse to watch Superman the movie again. I don't need an excuse to watch Superman the movie you, again. You don't, no. No, that's true. Uh, so go and check that out because it was good and we do thank Charlie for indulging us. Mm-hmm. Um, so on to emails. Our first email tonight is from Rob Stubbs. Hi, Rob. Hello, Rob. Civil War, or my story, depends on all characters being stupid or scrolls. At least I presume it's scrolls. It just says skulls. Maybe they're all skulls. That's possible. Boneheaded skulls. Boneheaded skulls. <laughs> yes. Greetings from the redacted to my British partners in non-criminal activities, Mr. Leyland Andrew and Mr. Leyland Michael. I wanted to start off by saying that the superior registration act makes perfect, flawed sense, nonsense, to me, as it is a government plan, scheme, pushed through by brave, shifty, political types to guide, control individuals who want to make a difference in the world. After all, the same government has done magnificent, stupid things, like building a bunch of robots who can think like the Sentinels to protect, take over humanity. Clearly we know how I feel about this storyline as I listen along to the show. I'm going to try and refrain from being overly political in my views, should already be somewhat well known, but the whole story, despite the errant nonsense that Miller claims, is clearly heavily motivated by political viewpoints. If he honestly believes otherwise, then he's either entirely surrounded by people of like political views, or is clueless. I'm not missing the possibility that he's both clueless and surrounded by people of like political views. <laughs> That's quite funny. Let's set this up with the idea that certain events have happened. We have the government funding the Sentinels multiple times with them rebelling and trying to take over the world or trying to wipe out humanity. We have individuals like Doctor Doom and other people like him running around trying to take over the world. We have powerful alien races who are at war with each other, who use the Earth as their battleground. We have criminals and madmen with powers running around like Nitro. We have Ultron, a machine entity who wiped out entire nations in Europe. We have people like Magneto, who has his grand cause that justifies his horrible actions. So clearly what we need to do is worry about registering the people willing to go out and fight all these entities because they really are the problem, not all the other ones who won't be affected by such laws in the first place because they don't care. So Tony, you are a member of a shadowy organisation of intellects who gather together to plan what you're going to do in the world. There's absolutely nothing sinister about meeting secretly with Charles Xavier, who hasn't shown any real regret at editing people's memories when it has been convenient for him. Or this Black Bolt person who rules a secretive society that all have powers and access to advanced technology on the moon. Or Namor, who has on multiple occasions declared war on the surface world and worked with several supervillains. Or Doctor Strange, who has connections to powerful alien entities and uses mystic forces in the world. Or Reed Richards, who defended Galactus, the cosmic entity that likes to devour entire planets for dinner snacks. I bet Black Bolt uses Twitter a lot, though we can't talk. As a side note, Twitter, at King Black Bolt. I'm secretly a scroll. Lols. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea of Black Bolt using Twitter because he can't talk. <laughs> That's quite funny. <laughs> During a vote, he just tweets it. Yeah, he tweets his vote. Uh, <laughs> Black Bolt likes this. Okay, things I liked, or at least like the potential of, continues Rob, Peter Parker becoming immersed in the wider Marvel Universe as being an intellect with the potential to be Stark, or Richards, or even Doom. If Parker hadn't been crippled by his overwhelming guilt, he could be on those guys' levels. Stark, recognising that potential and pulling him into his world as a protégé, works in that larger context. Stark thinks in terms of his allies being in tech like his, so it flows from the story that Spider-Man would get armour. Of course, Stark would put precautions because he's been burned too many times before by his technology getting beyond his control. So if someone else had tried to capture Nitro, like, say, a meter reader because he had illegally parked his car there, would there be a meter reader registration act after Nitro blows up? I don't think there would, no. Probably not. Which I think is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Although it would be the meter reader's fault, you know, and not Nitro's. Yeah. For this story to work, the characters have to act 
out of character and also be stupid as well as if they know the SHRA is likely to pass then they have lawyers standing by to file injunctions at every level in the courts because certainly no superhero is a lawyer like say She-Hulk or Daredevil no one certainly could go to the press and say this is against everything America stands for, like Captain America, or anyone else who has helped save the world on multiple occasions. No one has any connections to the government or knows important people to derail all this. It's not like the heroes helped to fight off an invasion by Kang where the government liaison and a lot of other people got killed. Yeah, and it's not like it was the X-Men. Mm. It's Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to the X-Men and go, this is an American, they would say, ah, mutie, shut up. Well, Captain America says it, people would listen to it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that governments can't pass bad laws, says Rob. Or laws full of noble intentions that are bad because politicians try to solve problems that don't exist all the time. I'm not even saying government agencies won't abuse their powers, as the most recent example of the IRS abusing its power on a broad scale. I'm not even saying public opinion can't be manipulated into supporting stupid things, as we have examples of people signing a petition to ban water using its technical chemical name on a TV show. However, this story fails because it doesn't do a proper setup to the events that are fold. If only the characters had been portrayed in a realistic fashion to show how they had acted in the past to lead up to a Civil War story that makes sense and doesn't depend on all the cast being utterly stupid, I might have liked this. Maybe we should get the writer of Axe Cop to try his hand at rewriting Civil War. <laughs> it would be much more interesting. <laughs> and suddenly Spider-Man turns into Flute Man. Spider-Man touches something and becomes it. Captain America punches Tony Stark and his head flies off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I've now got Im- images of Malachi what's his name writing Civil War and it making more sense yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would actually be awesome rather than fighting let's go kill the dinosaurs okay said Captain America <laughs> that's a good idea said Iron Man <laughs> <laughs> with no head <laughs> your American pal wishing I could say I'm looking forward to next week's show even though I am a tiny little bit well we hope you enjoyed Civil War 2 more than we did uh, P.S. I think if they've gotten Ms. Marvel to do ads for the initiative in a very skimpy bikini there would be no resistance at all <laughs> R.L. Stubbs Jr. <laughs> that's how they get all bills passed isn't it you just have a woman in a bikini do it yeah. <laughs> our next email is from some say He gave Ian Fleming the inspiration for the character of James Bond by his own actions. And that he prefers his martinis stirred, not shaken, because shaking them bruises the alcohol. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. What's so civil about war anyway, is the Uh, title of the email. Hey, you listened all the way to the end of the show. He did. Uh, No time for fancy introductions this week, boyos. Let's just start the email out right. Making Tony Stark a bad guy in this story is the single worst thing Mark Miller has ever done. I wouldn't go that far. Well, Luke continues, considering the piles of trash Miller has written, that's saying something. I'm just going to go on a limb. Right. Don't think Luke's a fan. No, 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 actually, I think he's a huge fan of Mark Miller. You think? Oh, he loves oh. kick-ass, nemesis, everything. Yeah. All right, fair dues. Luke continues, I'm going to keep this as bullet points to keep myself from going into a frothing political rant. <laughs> what is it about Civil War that makes people want to go into a know, political it's, rant? It's not like there's even anything political about no, it. No, 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 you have to be looking really hard exactly. to get the political subtext of Civil War, <laughs> yeah. don't you? Any kids would just go right <laughs> over their head. But kids wouldn't read Civil War, Mark. Because it's boring! True. I read Civil War when I was a kid. 
There's not enough action in it for kids. When was it? 2006? Yeah. I read it in 2006, so how old would I have been? I don't know. You were born in 95, so you'll have been 11. There you go, I read it when I was 11. Did you enjoy it when you were 11? I did. Alright, maybe I'm wrong though. Because it was just people fighting when you were... So maybe Mark Miller was right. Yes. And did the political subtext go over your head as an 11-year-old? Well, as an 11-year-old, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, maybe Miller's right and we're wrong. We wasted four hours of our life talking about Civil War. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Luke continues, The concept of the new Warriors being on a reality show was not Mark Miller's idea. Didn't I say in the show I liked that idea? Yeah. That would explain why I liked it then. (laughs) Luke continued, It was from the New Warriors miniseries from the year before. If the Marvel Brain Trust had any balls at the time of this story, they would have had the, at the time, darlings, New Avengers be the ones to chase Nitro. But they didn't. Now that would have been good, Mm. to have the New Avengers do it. Let's be honest, who cares about the New Warriors? Anybody? Mark Miller. When was the last time anybody cared about Speedball? Um, when was the first time anybody <laughs> cared about Speedball? Unless you're talking about the drug, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Luke continues the idea of Tony Stark hiring Titanium Man is so bizarrely idiotic that I can only chalk it up to JMS not having any idea how to write Iron Man. Or, an alternative theory, Luke, JMS was told to do that in his story by Mark Miller. Or editorial. Or both. Yeah. That's possible, isn't it? Maria Hill is, was, and always will be a terrible, terrible character. Oh, no, I liked her in the Avengers. I liked her in Invincible Iron Man. The Matt Fraction one? Yeah. I need to read that, given that I'm really loving Matt Fraction's Fantastic Four and Hawkeye. Where Tony Stark sleeps with Pepper Potts and Maria Hill two nights in a row without either of them knowing. Tony Stark, the player, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, the Superhero Registration Act never, ever made any sense. Couldn't agree more, Luke. The Illuminati were created by Bendis in order to be broken up. A great concept with a great cast, sorry, but all Bendis can think to do with them is break them up. Talk about creatively bankrupt. Tony Stark had revealed his identity back in Iron Man 400 several years before. In the lead-up to Avengers Disassembled, Bendis demanded Tony's identity be hidden again. No, really. He actually demanded editorial do this and brought in his hand-picked writer Mark Ricketts, who's actually quite a good writer and a nice guy to boot, to handle the storyline which did this, only to have Miller reveal his identity again a very short time later. This is what I call viciously stupid writing because the writing is so bad it actually assaults the reader physically. It also doesn't seem to make any sense to me. No. Why make his identity a secret again to not have it be a secret again? Especially when an Avengers disassembled Tony Stark wearing the Iron Man armour, I think. No, maybe I'm imagining that wrong. That could be my... Yeah, never mind. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, Killing Bill Foster says Luke is one of the most absurd slaps in the face with the Marvel Brain Trust has ever thrown at us. Disgusting. Is he still dead? No idea. I don't, I don't know if they ever brought Giant Man back. Bendis' story in New Avengers, about why Luke Cage ended up going anti-reg, is the single worst story starring Luke Cage which I have ever read, and I'm within spitting distance of finishing my complete Luke Cage run. It also solidified the idea that Bendis had never read an actual issue of Luke Cage's comics from either the 70s, 80s, or 90s. My wife, who does not read comics, thought of a better rationale for Luke to go anti-reg than the guy who supposedly knows everything about the Marvel U. I liked it in the sense that if you read Bendis's Jessica Jones story mm-hmm. it's pretty decent yeah but that's not playing into the whole history of the character I mean it makes sense to me that Luke would be anti-reg yeah I'm perfectly down well, with I'm pretty sure that issues has Tony Stark kicked down his door 
and threaten Jessica and the baby. Right. Unless, you know... Because that's totally a character for Tony. Yeah, it was, if Luke Cage doesn't sign up or anything, he'll arrest all three of them. Well, not all three of them. But you can't arrest the baby, obviously. Both of them. And then Luke Cage kicks his ass. Good. And them two run away. I still want my Luke Cage hero for higher TV series. Yeah. Yes. And it better have a kick-ass wacka 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 theme tune a black exploitation it totally needs show. a black exploitation theme tune it doesn't yeah. need to be a black exploitation show but I totally want Luke Cage hero for hire the first the, the pilot should premiere on Christmas <laughs> and be called Sweet Christmas yeah. that's the title of the pilot episode <laughs> love it mm-hmm. um, now the only problem with that Luke is you've not told us what your wife's idea was you can't leave us hanging like that man especially seeing as women frequently have bizarre insights into comics that you go why did I ever think of that well maybe this his wife's ideas are like foreshadowed until a later episode when boom it's a alright so he's planted the seed there and later on he's going to tell us yeah I like that idea Matt Fraction has no idea how extremist works and got it 100% wrong in the Dark Reign storyline which Michael mentioned kudos for mentioning it okay yeah uh, here's the gist fellas assuming that we have to have this story go down Tony and Cap are backwards See, I've heard people say that before, and on the one hand, I kind of agree with it. On the other, I don't see a Captain America who, in Engelhart's run in the 70s, gave up being Captain America to question himself and his place in the country. I don't see that guy being pro-registration. So I, I I don't see them swapping places. I don't see Cap being pro-registration at all. To make Iron Man pro-registration, they had to completely turn Tony Stark into somebody he isn't. Yeah. So, whilst I I get what people are saying when they say that, the Captain America that Steve Englehart wrote would never support it. Mm. And possibly the Captain America of other writers as well, but... Anyway. There is a long history of Tony Stark fighting against government agencies, including no less than S.H.I.E.L.D. and the U.S. Senate, in order to keep his information and technology as his own, as ably depicted in Iron Man 2. Mm-hmm. The Tony Stark in the 500 or so issues of Iron Man, which I own, would tell the government to pound salt regarding the SHRA. I can much more by Captain America saying something along the lines of Tony. We have to take responsibilities for our actions after the new Warriors incident. But you can't have that because the bad guy has to be a rich conservative so that you can have heavy-handed bad political allegory. Civil War was plan C of the Marvel Brain Trust attempt to fix the Marvel Universe, and like those before and after it, it was a failure. They were. Avengers disassembled plan A, which sucked. I didn't uh, like Avengers Disassembled at all, and I only read not. a little bit of it. I enjoyed it, except for the fact that everything happens too fast for the sake of... Um, An Abendis comic? No, for the sake of shock. Because wasn't that Bendis' first... Yes, his first story out was Avengers Disassembled. Yeah, and everything about it was shock value. Right. His run would get a lot better down the road, but it started off very jumper. Right. Is that where he killed Hawkeye? Yeah. Not like this! Yeah. yeah that's what we thought, isn't it? House of M, plan B, awful House of M. I liked it. Duh. Oh, God. Civil War, plan C. I used to like it. <laughs> this is, that's where I gave up, yeah. isn't it? I did not read another big Marvel crossover until you made me read Avengers vs. X-Men. I read, like, the summer last year, I read everything from... Avengers Disassembled to Avengers vs. X-Men. Right, because I remember you saying you liked them. I did like them. The Initiative, Plan D, never read it. Oh, that was just... 
uh, Mighty Avengers. That right. was everything after. Dark Reign, Plan E, never read it. Dark Reign was more of um, an era rather than an event. It didn't have an event, but it was the era in between Secret, Invasion, and Siege. Right. And I've never read Siege either. I think the problem with Siege <laughs> is Siege was Bendis' last story. Everything culminated in Siege. That was the end, but it carried on going after it. Right. So, like, Ed Brubacker with Winter Soldier as Captain America. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so on and so forth, continues Luke. I know you guys didn't care for it, but I would rather read Maximum Carnage twice than read Civil War again. Thanks for taking this bullet, boys. Uh, in all honesty, Luke, I would rather read Maximum Carnage than read Civil War. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Infinite Crisis had a lot more death in it, but my god, it was better than this trash by a wide margin. It oh, yeah. was, wasn't it? I need to read Infinite Crisis again, because I don't remember hating that. But I didn't hate Identity Crisis when I read it. Yeah. I thought Identity Crisis was riveting while I was I reading s- it. No, it's still good the second time, even when you know who it is. Right, okay. Now, on to Iron Man 3, says Luke. There will be spoilers in this bit of the email. I hate to say this, says Luke, but Michael is wrong on this one. Oh, come on. The Mandarin character in Iron Man 3 was not American. He was playing the role of an Arabic terrorist who leads the ten rings of the last two films. It might be that this plays differently to a British audience, but as an American watching the film, that was the clear meaning. The pirate video transmissions opened with the ten rings flag, which has Arabic writing on it, and the imagery of Mandarin being mobbed by children and shooting an effigy of the president are both standard Arabic terrorist rhetoric. Rebuttal? Because I agree with Luke. That's what I got from the film. So, where did the dog tags come from? Maybe he took them off a soldier that he supposedly killed. I don't remember. They were his dog tags. I don't remember. See, the thing with this is, when I went watching Iron Man 3, as I do with all films at the cinema, I don't go to watch them critically. If you were watching something for this, we watch it with a different eye, don't we? I go to the cinema to be entertained, which is primarily why I can come out of the cinema, mm-hmm. all of Pierce Brosnan's Bond films, Superman Returns being prime examples, going, God, that was good. <laughs> and then when I watch them later on DVD, you're kind of like, actually, this doesn't really hold up, does it? Because I'm going to the cinema to be entertained. Yeah. Something has to be really, really, really quite bad for me to be not liking it in the cinema. Or to make you get up and walk out of the cinema. Yes, yeah, like Batman and Robin nearly made me do. The only time I've ever nearly walked out of the cinema was Batman and Robin. I just sank lower and lower and lower in my seat. Why's that film unspooled? It was just awful, awful stuff. So, so obviously, when we were watching Iron Man 3, yeah. I was watching the opening scene and buying into the Mandarin's rhetoric, as we were supposed to mm-hmm. at that point in the film. So I've got to admit, I wasn't paying that much close attention to it. It's certainly on the re-watching that you will watch that bit differently now that you know how it all turns out. But I'll tell you how it didn't, what, mm-hmm. what didn't help, is that the week before or so, when they were plugging it on the radio, they flat out told you the character was American. Right, so, okay, so if they told you that on the radio, yeah. and you've gone in with that, and that's what you've seen in it. Yeah. See, I didn't hear that interview. I did. Apart from, I think I said this on the show. Apart from seeing the shot of Tony Stark's house falling into the sea, mm. that is the only bit of footage of Iron Man three I'd seen before we saw the film. But yeah, when I was in school on time, I read the radio on and up, and mm. they were talking about it. Right. They flat out said he was American. Right. Okay. Fair enough. So maybe you went into the cinema with that in your head, and that's what you got from it. Yeah. But certainly, we will pay more attention when we watch it on DVD or Blu-ray. 
Luke continues, his accent was purposefully all over the place to make him harder to place. This is even referred to in the film, and he tells Tony that the character was made by a mix of different symbology, nomenclature, strategies, and so forth. There is no real trace of a southern US accent, though. Take it from a guy who lives in the south. Yeah, yeah that's the only thing I really disagree. I didn't get southern at all. I, okay. But I watch a lot more Justified than you do. Yeah. So, <laughs> and Luke lives in the south, so... Yeah. <laughs> Personally speaking, I think Sir Ben Kingsley did an amazing job playing the Mandarin. Mandy as a character has gone through a lot of iterations over the years, but this one works really well, especially in the context of the film universe. Now, could they have done Mandarin without the twist? I think so, especially since this is a post-Thor, post-Avengers world where super science magic has already been loosed upon the world. So his rings could be ancient magical relics stolen by Mandarin, like Red Skull and the Tesseract. Or he could have been hopped up on extremists and the rings would simply be for show. Either way, it would have worked just fine, I think. As for the twist, I thought it was well done. I definitely did not see it coming. The idea of Killian as the <coughs> scientist supreme of AIM was brilliant, especially when you consider his speech to Tony about the power of anonymity. Anonymity. That was one of the founding pillars of AIM, that they were scientists who had no scruples or morals who could work anonymously, hence the giant beekeeper outfit which hid all their features. The Scientist Supreme was typically called only by his title for this reason. I often have said that Marvel needed to position AIM as the main enemies of Iron Man, like they were in some parts of the early 80s, so I'm glad that we have had a major story which finally does just that, admittedly in a different method than I would have thought, but still though nonetheless. I don't think this twist diminishes the Mandarin as a character, because we've already strayed so far from the comics when it comes to the bad guys in the Iron Man movies, but this is just par for the course. I mean, is this really any stranger than making Obadiah Stane part of Stark Industries, or making Whitlash a Russian genius instead of a mob hitman? And the Mandarin as a character elicits such a wide range of responses from Iron fans, from rah-rah enthusiasm to seething dislike, that I think that this fake Mandarin was probably a smart move insofar as he gets us to the figure and presence of the Mandarin for those who like him, but he's not the main focus for those that do not like it. As far as the Mandarin being the real mastermind, I think there's a third layer. Killian can't be the real Mandarin because he has no motivation for the acts that the Ten Rings does in the other movies. Why would Killian bankroll a terror cell in Afghanistan? Raza was clearly connected to the Mandarin, both by being part of the Ten Rings as well as wearing one of those rings. Why would Killian assist Ivan Vanko in coming to Monaco to attack and ostensibly kill Tony Stark? It was an agent of the Ten Rings who gave him the fake passport so he could get out of Russia. What does Killian stand to gain by these actions? Neither really help AIM or himself. So I tend to think that while the slattery character was exactly what he said he was, an actor playing a role, that there was another puppet master pulling the strings. Slattery even says they gave him plastic surgery to look more like the real Mandarin, perhaps. Overall, I loved the movie from start to finish. It was refreshing to see someone other than Warren Ellis and the Nauf's get extremists right for a change, i.e. it's not a virus, and the depiction of the extremists enhanced was great. The cast was great, the story was involving and kept me guessing, the action was spectacular, and the effects were top-notch and the set pieces amazing. The finale with the Iron Legion was fantastic and I really liked the Mark 42, which, like the Encephalo armour, is loose, it is loosely based than in the comics, is constantly punished just because no one is inside of it. <laughs> I dug how it was such a personal film for the character of Tony Stark and not just action for two hours. Just top to bottom, an amazing film. I'm probably going to go and see it again when my parents come to town next month. Luke. Well, thank you for that, Luke. I wanted to hear from a proper Iron Man fan what they thought of it because there has been some mixed results. Mm-hmm. over what uh, what happened to the Mandarin mm-hmm. but you know I was going to say my favourite sequence in the entire movie was rescued all the occupants of Earth Force 1 yeah that was that. a proper superhero moment and we should have more of them there should be loads of that in Man of Steel otherwise I probably won't be impressed I like the bit where it was just Tony fighting without a suit yeah and he keeps jumping from suit to suit 
No, the bit when he was in the snowy place. Oh, right. With the kid. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, our next email is from Mike Moran, a first-timer emailing to a podcast. But, I was just going to say, but only to an email. Only to an email. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Michael. Hello, Mike. Hello, you have Mike. to be called Michael to, to listen to the show. We've established this before, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luke's first name's Michael. It's his little-known first name. Is it? Yeah, like Robert some Bruce Banner. Your some say. His first name is really Mike. I've been enjoying your podcast for a couple of months now. Well, thank you very much, Mike. And upon hearing your latest masterpiece... Well, I like to call it a masterpiece. <laughs> I love that he's put a question mark on. <laughs> I felt compelled to write in and join in the fun. Andrew, you and I are old hats at this comic book reading business, which is a nice way of saying we're getting on a bit, isn't it? <laughs> I have been reading since I was 13 and remember buying them from the local drugstores and 7-Eleven. You have those in England, right? No, we don't have 7-Elevens. We used to have Sony and so Spa, which was essentially the same thing. We also enjoy the same love for early Spider-Man and Ditko's work. With those things and other similarities we share, age being another one, I'm always happy to hear your thoughts on whatever comics you two are discussing. What is the 11 coming to 7-11? It was up from 7 in the morning to 11 at night. All right. I think. Because I was going to say, it'd be better if it's called 7-12. I only learned of 7-11 from Dark Knight Returns. And then that they call it 7 Leben. Yeah. Which is quite funny. You and Michael were to begin with you. Oh, you're great. It would be a... <laughs> a good start. Right, yeah. I enjoy your takes on the comics you enjoy and also the comics you discuss on the podcast. I can see your point of view on things as well. Civil War, for example. And I'm surprised at how insightful, especially when it comes to the art in the books you are. It is great that you and your pops can share a hobby and a love of all things comic booking. All right, enough pandering. <laughs> Never enough pandering. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Carry on. Carry on, yeah. Time for the reasons for this email, which is twofold. Firstly, in response to your latest Civil War show, the book came out at about a time when I was not reading comics as avidly as I once was. I have to admit that I got swept up in the whose side are you on propaganda and immediately got sucked into the event, which included all the crossovers, multiple covers and other miniseries, of which, by the way, not all were that bad. The stand-up for me was front lines, which I thought fleshed out the main story more and added more depth and emotion, even if it was for speedball. When I first read the main series, I felt I had an electric quality in the art, but the constant delays did make me frustrated, to say the least, as I awaited the next issues. Looking back, though, as I reread this recently after hearing your show, I could see the holes of logic in how people, Cap and Iron Man, would act way out of character at times. Like Michael, though, I really did enjoy the series and still look back fondly on the event that got me back into comics. Can't wait to hear the second episode and hear how it failed and all delivered in both of your perspectives. Secondly, and on a totally unrelated topic, your love of Vertigo books has me revisiting some of those titles. For that, I would have to thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed your Hellblazer episodes, and though I never read any of that title before, I've begun to dig through the back issue bins and find some great reads from them. Preacher is a book you often talk about as one of your favourites. I admit having read them mainly for the shocking bits back in the day, and even though I own the whole run, I have never given them a second read until recently. I hope you can fit into your schedule a Preacher episode in the near future. I would love to hear both of your opinions on, not your favourite issues, at least the last storyline, Alamo. That's all from now. Cheers, Mike Moran. Um, Alimo's a possibility, isn't it? Yeah. I know me and Mike Bailey have got something cooking on Preacher. Have you? And now we can do this whole you and I can be on the same call thing. Yeah. I'm sure Mike would not be averse to having you join us for that. Yeah. So, but certainly covering Alamo, that that made me think mm. that would be fun to do. So, uh, we'll, 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 do that. we'll put that in, on the book, Mike. Thank you for emailing it, Mike. It's always it's nice to in, hear. in the book, yeah. It's in the book. It doesn't mean it'll get on a show <laughs> like Wolverine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our final email tonight, go on, we'll squeeze it in. Episode volume 2, number 10, it's from Sphinx Magoo. 
Our good pal Sphinx, our able Padilla. Greetings, Leyland. Greetings, Sphinx. I send a message from your past to you in the future. I caught up on my old Fantasticast episodes, so now it's time to catch up with you. Just a few notes on the episode. 1A. In the Brainiac story, you mentioned some people in the crowd wondering, what if Superman should turn against us? Isn't this a bit like Reed Richards engaging in his fear of the thing over in the Fantasticast? Sorry for a bit of podcast crossover, though. Oh, no, we don't mind crossing over. Cross the streams. Number two, as for the Luther story, not having read the Azarello Luther story, I wonder if perhaps there's a bit of Rashomon-like storytelling involved. Luther probably doesn't see himself as a villain, so a story about him from his point of view would take his side and see Superman as a threat. Matt Fraction did a very nice take on this idea with the Mandarin in Invincible Iron Man Annual Number 1, where the story the Mandarin wishes the world to know is extremely odds with the reality that the people he forces to tell his story to which they discover for themselves. Three, I've done some quick maths, and I found that I was about 18 when Action Comics 544 was released. It gads, where has the time gone? Number four, I agree with you that Gil Kane did an excellent job on Action Comics. Kane's work seemed much less loose on action than it was in his Spider-Man work. I believe that during that time he was working on Spider-Man, he was furiously accepting as much work he could as much work as he could handle for personal reasons. This might account for the almost manic energy that seems to come through in his Marvel work. Maybe by the time he worked on Superman, he felt he could slow down a bit. 1B. Oh, never mind, you saw that too. That's why I didn't mention anything when we did 1A. Mm-hmm. Number 5, Re Superman 400. I really liked the Mobius pinup. I think Epic has been reprinting some of Mobius's work at this time, so seeing this version of Superman, both cartoony and evocative of some of Mobius's science fantasy work, was a surprise delight. Certainly much more pleasant than the Wolverine poster Marvel had released. And let's have a look at that, because he sent us a link. That's pretty cool. You think? It looks like he's sat on a giant member. So Wolverine likes the best of both worlds. Does he really? Yeah, see, Wolverine looks a bit odd to me. But if you like it... Again, you know, the rest of it's pretty cool. Wolverine himself's a bit weak. Yeah. Art is in the eye of the beholder. Um, if you want to look at that, love the listeners, it's on i.imgur.com slash d-o-w-o-z-g-8.jpg. If you want to have a look at that yourself. I just call it Imgur. Imgur. I saw this Superman image and I wanted to see this story. I imagine Superman inter- interacting sorry, with Major Gruber against some force that would threaten the airtight garage. Maybe it was just me. <laughs> if I knew what you were talking about, I would agree with you. Number six, I was glad to hear your enjoyment of the John Byrne Superman stories. I'm slowly making my way to the present. It might take a little longer since these episodes are two to three times longer than Fantastic Cast. Still, I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. Only the Superman ones are two to three times longer. Sphinx. We, we went back to a more normal length mm-hmm. when Superman finished it. As a side note, I'd like to recommend a podcast to you. In iTunes, it's listed as Tom vs. Comics. But if you were to Google it, you'll be able to find a longer list of podcasts. Tom Caters, starting with looks at the Justice League, moved on to cover the Barry Allen Flash, then to classic Aquaman stories before taking a break to deal with real life. Recently, to keep busy in between jobs, he recorded eight podcasts focusing on Jim C- focusing on Jimmy Olsen stories. His style is irreverent, but he has a definitive love and enjoyment for the material. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mentioned the Jimmy Olsen episodes because of the Superman time, but please consider listening to his Flash episodes, where he delights in describing the wonky Silver Age goodness by accepting it and laughing along with it. Some of the early kid Flash ones are especially funny. Thank you again for your delightful podcast. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Mr. Magoo. Well, thank you very much. We will. Uh, I'll check that podcast out because I'll listen to anything that's free. Come <laughs> on, right? We're going to take a quick break and plug somebody's show, and we'll be right back.
The Bronze Age of Comics, an era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. And we're here to welcome you to our Marvel Now season, where we look at the recent Marvel relaunches and developments in the universe in much the same way as we did the New 52, picking a few of our favorite books from the initiative. I say we. I think by and large I've picked all of these, haven't I? Well, Marvel's yours, yeah. Unless you have, you, have, you have something you particularly want to cover. I don't read Marvel comics. You read Spider-Man. Sure. I'm covering that, so... <laughs> <laughs> Job done. Uh, comic books are, by and large, a cyclical industry, with the two main comic book companies feeding off each other, and the ebbs and flows of the marketplace tend to mean that both companies will take what the other is doing and twist it, turn it around, and then release their own spin on it. The rival between the big two, Marvel and DC, has been in place since Stan Lee started referring to DC as the distinguished competition back in the 60s. The rival went on through the 70s and 80s with both companies occasionally joining forces for a time and then splitting up again, like a relationship that you know is bad for you, but somehow you can't help yourself. The rivalry took a distinctively nasty turn in the early 2000s when Joe Quisada took over and elevated the competition between the two in a rather more mean-spirited way than Stan ever did. How, I wonder, would the elder Joe Quisada explain to his younger self, who insultingly called the DC AOL comics, implying corporate-owned comics were somehow the enemy, that Marvel would now be owned by Disney? Oh. The mean-spiritedness of the noughties called time on an intercompany crossovers, and the rise of exclusive contracts for creators meant that, in theory, a more unified vision of the characters could be put forth. To be fair, Marvel did experience a fair share of creative growth in the noughties under Quisada's stewardship, and whilst the dalliance with indie creators on mainstream books had as many hits as misses, Quisada steered the company through the choppy waters of bankruptcy, and through it all managed to keep Marvel at the top of the market share and sales charts. I doubt Disney would have had any interest in buying a company that wasn't afloat, and Quisada deserves all the credit for achieving that with Marvel. However, the comics market was changed drastically in August 2011 when DC Comics, now under the leadership of Dan DiDio, hit the reset button on all the titles, including Hardy Perennials, Detective Comics and Action Comics, which had been in near-continuous publication since the late 30s. This was initially greeted with scepticism by Marvel, with Quisada and newly appointed editor-in-chief Axel Alonso pointing out that this wasn't the first time this had been done by DC, as if this was business as usual, but it's hard to imagine Imagine that Marvel would have launched across the board new number ones if DC hadn't shown the sales bump such an endeavour causes. Irrespective of the reasons, it wasn't long before Marvel followed suit, and predictably, they were quick to point out the differences between their relaunch and DC's reboot. 
DC's New 52 was a reboot, Marvel insisted, with new Who's Who in the DC Universe article stating that Superman's first appearance was not in Action Comics number 1 in 1938, but actually in Justice League number 1 in 2011. Yes, Alonzo said, Marvel will launch new comics with new creative teams and in some cases new setups for the characters, but these would be the old characters given a new lick of paint and not a complete disregard for all that had gone before. The relaunched comics would all be branded Marvel Now. In addition, some series that Marvel had launched recently that didn't need a new number one but had the ethos of Now would receive a rebranding but not a new numbering. In October 2012, the first Marvel Now books hit, and slowly over time, we've been treated to what I think has been an almost entirely successful rebranding. Books that had become moribund or that I had lost interest in were suddenly infused with a new vitality. There has been no throwing out of old relationships or the history of the characters, something I always thought was more important than actual continuity, and in many cases the restructuring of the creative teams and the new stories being told were all quite interesting. Not everything has been a success. Bendis's all-new X-Men seems to be squandering a decent idea. The original X-Men come forward in time and are appalled by their current counterparts, with a storyline that may have made an interesting annual or mini-series in the Clermont days, but feels padded over a multi-issue story arc. And there are still far too many X and Avengers titles. But Marvel sensibly staggered the release of their issue once, releasing 28 new titles over a six-month period, rather than cramming an arbitrary number of boots into one month. There are also too many Deadpool books, but given that he's this decade's Lobo, people have to get bored of him sooner or later. There's only one Deadpool book. Is there not eight now? There used to be. And isn't there not anymore? But they did something where readers got to vote for which one they wanted to cancel. We're letting readers vote which books we cancel now? Yeah. With Deadpool. Only with Deadpool? Yes. Okay. And you know what I have to say? I don't think releasing the new... Reboot. I'm sorry, rebranding <laughs> over a six-month period. Not a reboot, dude. That much of a good idea. Why? Well, I suppose if this is a rebranding, it would make some sense. But with DC, it was a reboot, so it all had to happen at once. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying that's not right. Yeah. What I'm saying is the way Marvel's done it in releasing it slowly over time. It's not been such a big hit on your pocket. If they'd have released all these Marvel Now books in one month. I probably wouldn't have picked up as many as I have ultimately ended up picking up. I guess what you're doing is then you, you're picking up um, Uncanny Avengers. going And then dropping it straight away. God, that was awful. Yes. And then because nothing else is going to come out for another month, there's going to be scepticism. No, but it also gave me time to check out the other Now books and go... Actually, FF by Matt Fraction looks interesting. And then you're waiting to get more books mm. because it's not happening at the same time. See, see, the thing with this is you're looking at it from the point of view of you're a teenage boy and you want everything now. Oh, I don't want everything now, but when it comes to something that, like a rebranding, I think it should happen at once rather than over time. Well, they, they did roll them out relatively consistently in between, I think it was October 2012 and then over a six-month period. But then it's six months for one thing. But is it not keeping the momentum going? You're not just seeing a sales spike for one month like DC did. And then they, they maintain those sales spike has continued. Mm-hmm. And the books that were not selling as well pre-DC52 
are now selling better before the new 52. But I think it's undeniable that the sales spike that the new 52 caused has since settled down. Whereas if you're rolling out your number ones over a period of months, surely that sales spike is going to continue higher for a longer period of time. But then what you're doing is, it's just a line. Your sales means nothing really when what Marvel are doing is having the same spike but over a longer period of time. It's all going to go back down. You think? Yeah. Mm. Alright, okay. Fair enough. I, I think Marvel Now's work has been better across the board for the most part than DC's New 52. But Marvel hasn't settled down yet. That's true. This is valid points. And that's not to say there are not good books in New 52. But the New 52 books that I consider good are the ones that haven't had very big creative upheavals. Mm. So Batman, Scott Snyder and... Uh, who's the artist? Greg Capullo. Greg Capullo have been pretty much on that since the beginning. Flash yeah. has had the same creative team. All-Star West and the it same creative team. Flash is a guest artist. I know, but roughly... Yeah, same okay. creative team the guy's had to take a couple of issues off because he's not a monthly artist but they've not completely changed the creative team after six months mm-hmm. like the Superman books did there are a lot of other books they're changing all the time Justice League has managed to maintain a, a more or less regular creative team Jim Lee's not on the book anymore no. but it's it's Ivan Reese isn't it Yeah. who pretty much has stood it at the feet of Jim Lee so it's not like you really notice any difference. And it's not that Ivan Reese is a bad artist by any means. He's no. an exceptionally good artist. And I think Justice League has actually become really good since Jim Lee left. And I don't think that's a reflection on Jim Lee. I think it's more Jeff Johns has gotten a better idea of where he's going with it now. It's the right moment they are, but yeah. Jim Lee just so happened to be working on it at that time. Yes, I think that. I think the first Jeff Johns Justice League story out wasn't particularly interesting, mm-hmm. and I think we pulled it to bits at one point. But I think Justice League has improved in leaps and bounds. But then other titles which I enjoy, Animal Man, Swamp Thing, yeah. have had several different artists. But yeah. does the writer not set the tone? No. Because Jeff Lemire stuck with both of those books. But the there's a lot of the time when it is the artist right who set the tone just as much as the writer does okay no that's fair enough I'm not disagreeing with you certainly the tone of Hawkeye is set by both Matt Fraction and the artist which is noticeable when the art changes yeah and Daredevil the art has followed a consistent look even though three different artists have worked on that book since Matt Wade launched it so there must be a very definite feel that they're going for. Draw like Kirby. Yeah. So I don't want anyone thinking I'm dissing on New 52. Yeah. There are books in the New 52 that I think are very good. There are books in the New 52 that I don't like at all. But there are books in Marvel now that I don't like at all. Mm -hmm. But across the board of the books I've experimented with in Marvel now, I've stuck with more of them than I have with New 52. You haven't bought as many... Marvel than you did 52 though to be honest that's true we experimented with a lot more new 52 number ones than we did with Marvel now yeah and I think maybe that's more a reflection on the fact that this is not a reboot so there is elements of this carrying on completely Mm. certainly Superior Spider-Man may have launched with number one but it's very much a continuation of what was going on in Amazing Spider-Man oh yeah and so's Uncanny Avengers Whereas other books in the new fifty in the new fifty two in Marvel now, like Captain America and the Hulk, yeah. have no basis on what was going on before. 
maybe Hulk does. Little, you don't have to have read what was going on in the Hulk before this. I know. Because I've only read World War Hulk and Planet Hulk, and I've no problem following the Indestructible Hulk. But anyway, the two comics we're covering tonight both offer up both spectrums of the now relaunch, a book that has been relaunched with a brand new number one, a new creative team and a new creative direction, and one that has been rebranded as part of the now initiative. First up, the Incredible Hulk is a character that's been through a lot in the last decade or so. Sent off to outer space for being a huge weapon of mass destruction by the Illuminati, consisting of Reed Richards, Black Bolt, Tony Stark, Namor, Doctor Strange and Professor X, he found himself on a far-off planet where he engaged in gladiatorial combat in an interstellar ludus in the really rather entertaining Planet Hulk. He returned to Earth for his vengeance in, again, the really rather good but saddled with a weak-ending World War Hulk. He was then given a new series with the Red Hulk saga by Jeff Loeb and Ed McGuinness that, again, was solid, entertaining stuff and had his supporting cast expanded with everybody, his wife, Betty Ross, and his old adversary, General Thunderbolt Ross, also becoming Hulks, albeit of a different hue. These characters were also rewarded with their own book, Incredible Hulks, expanding the Hulk franchise. A new Hulk comic, The Incredible Hulk, now up to volume 4, was relaunched and ran for some 15 issues, but it was decided the Hulk was one of the characters that needed a new direction. Enter Mark Wade. Well, maybe we'd rather not enter Mark Wade, but, you know... Wade's pitch for the Hulk was remarkably similar to the approach used by Joss Whedon in the Avengers movie. What if the Hulk's alter ego, Robert Bruce Banner, decided that constantly trying to cure the Hulk was actually a massive waste of time? And what if instead he decided to concentrate Banner's brilliance elsewhere? It was an inspired idea, Whedon has said, that his problem with the two Hulk movies are that the guy is trying to stop himself from being the very thing you're going to see the movie for. And this approach lets the creators and readers have their cake and eat it. Indestructible Hulk 1 picks up a few months after the last series ended. No one has seen the Hulk or Banner for weeks and Maria Hill, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., is looking for him. It came out on November 21st, 2012 and boasts no cover date. Weird. The cover, like the interior, is by Leniel Francis Yu and depicts the Hulk wearing strange bionic-like pants, still purple, naturally, about to smash the Separatist droid army from Star Wars. One of them appears to be swearing at the Hulk. Apart from the Hulk not having any eyeballs and sporting a crew cut, it's a decent cover that actually looks painted. I know you're a mark for Lenny Hill Francis Yu, aren't you? Yeah. So what did you think of I the cover? I really, really, really like that one. Despite the fact it's got nothing to do with the story. No. I, I, do, I do like the little robot with its little face. The one that's swearing that looks like skeets. Well, the one that looks like it's panicking you. Yeah, from um, Blue Beetle. It does look yeah, like yeah. it's going, oh dear. I love he is fighting the Separatist right now. Mm. Roger, Roger, smash. But I've always liked Francis Hughes stuff, and that just looks... The, the watercolours. Is that what it is? It's it not painted, like it's it, watercolours. Yeah. It is a really, really good cover. I do like it an awful lot. The Hulk's proportions are like a man, but considerably bigger. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that applies to the trouser department. <laughs> or would assume so. Ever known it? Uh, but it is really, really good. Do comics not have cover dates anymore? Because uh, this doesn't have a cover date yeah, anywhere. DC's uh, does. This doesn't have any. Not at all. Anyway. Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. was written by Mark Wade and drawn by Leniel Francis Hugh, with colours by Sonny Gyo and letters by Chris Eliopoulos. Or Eliopoulos. Eliopoulos. 
Something like that. It was edited by Mark Panacea. In Manchester, Alabama, Maria Hill converses with Phil Coulson via tablet in a diner that has nothing on the menu that's not fried. She'll have lost the Hulk, and that's unacceptable. Coulson tries to convince Hill that he'll show up, and everything will be fine. The search for the Hulk will continue, after all. Where can he go? Granted, she wasn't expecting Bruce Banner to find her. But find her, he did. Hill panics, but Bruce assures her that he's just here to talk. He informs Hill he's finally realised that he's incurable, at least as technology and science currently exist. A blow to his ego, sure, but not as big a blow as when Tony Stark was the one to help bring an end to the recent Avengers vs. X-Men conflict. So, how to resolve this? First, curing the Hulk is not an option, so instead, why not manage it, monitor it, and when necessary, use it? Second, with a suitable staff, budget and HQ, Banner could start using his vast intellect more productively. He's here to give S.H.I.E.L.D. first dibs. Of course he has insurance, somebody with files Banner has built up and who is instructed to put them into play if something happens to him. Of course, Hulk outs are inevitable, but in those cases, aim the Hulk. S.H.I.E.L.D.'s mission, should they choose to accept it, guide the Hulk, use him productively and retrieve Banner when the dust settles. Speaking of which, Banner tells Hill he knows why she's here. The mad thinker suspected of manufacturing WMDs is in town. S.H.I.E.L.D. is monitoring him, but Banner says a Hulk attack is something even the thinker can't have anticipated, especially given his current technology. Hill uses the Hulk and sure enough, Banner was right. Using Ultron technology, the thinker has invented something that would have liquefied the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, but against the Hulk, even the thinker's prodigious intellect is rendered useless. After all, how can you calculate the incalculable? Hill sees the benefits of Banner's proposal and accepts. As she escorts him away, however, Banner's gamma monitor ticks ominously. I always think there should be music when we finish those. Yeah. I mean, there is when people listen to it, obviously, mm. but there isn't when we record it. I always, in my head, I always imagine dun 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 dun. I've got to put that in there. <laughs> Um, throughout the issue, before we get into the page-by-page page stuff, there is a recurring motif of the ticking clock, firstly in the diner, and then later on Banner's own watch, obviously. This has many different meanings within the context of the story. The ticking clock on Banner's offer to Hill, where he says if S.H.I.E.L.D. aren't interested, he'll just go to China or Japan. Something I think was a bluff, especially when he says he'll go to Latveria. Yeah, for the, for the doom health. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the ticking clock on S.H.I.E.L.D.'s attack on the Thinker, and of course the ticking time bomb that is Banner himself. Mm-hmm. And Maria Hill owns a S.H.I.E.L.D. standard issue iPad. Does she? Yeah, yeah. How do you know it's S.H.I.E.L.D. standard issue? I don't know, I was making a nut. Right, okay, and do you think it's coincidence that the S.H.I.E.L.D. iPad is right next to the AR app? Well, yeah, I was going to say, the readers can use these AR things. They're just advertising it, though, saying, you know, this icon here, use this. Mm. Read them. I thought that was on the cover. I thought that was if you used the cover one. Um, I could be wrong. I don't it's know. on all of them, really. Right, okay. Fair news. Uh, page two. Page one is just, um, oddly, for a first issue, it's a recap page. I mean, it's only got the standard Dr. David Banner beginning. I mean, it's Bruce Banner was a brilliant scientist. Mm, no, you're doing Twilight as well. You should be doing... 
If you don't do it fast enough, it's a completely different game. Yes, completely different. And then the credits, and when you see the AR app. Uh, but the diner is really quite well illustrated, even if some of the people seem a bit off. And it's all in proportion. Yes. What do you mean? I'm saying yes, but go on. Um, Alright, you see how there's a very definite horizon yeah. to the floor? Yeah. The wall, the tables, and the people all fit on the horizon mm-hmm. in a correct way, and all the people, uh, small or big, depending on where they are correctly. Right. So is that accurate? Yes. Right, okay, fair enough. I'll take your word for it. I just thought it was like, it was a nice piece of art, and some of the people seemed a bit odd. But it was only when I looked at it going back to do the notes, because the way I do this now is I read the issue, write the synopsis, Mm. and then I go back and do the notes separately, instead of trying to do it all in one go. I thought there was definitely a fisheye approach to what he's done, though. Yeah. He's tried to fit what shouldn't fit into that space fit in by didn't you like the fish because well you say the horizon that to me looks like a fisheye lens fair enough but no I'm not saying you're wrong you're the art student yeah so you probably know better than I do um I did like that the menu has nothing on it that isn't fried mm. which I thought was funny well it's Alabama yeah it's a very um packed diner for a town that only has a population of 872 yeah they're all in the diner I was gonna say <laughs> Everyone comes to this diet. This is the only place to eat in town. Yeah. <laughs> Would make a lot of sense. Uh, page through. Page through. Page three. The GNN News Network in this book is fictional. Although the Hulk's legs look a bit off in the camera footage we're supposedly watching on GNN. See, I thought that. But if you think that it's a still of the Hulk moving... Is it a still, though? Or are we supposed to be seeing a moving image on TV? Yeah, I think that's it. But because comics are still, right. we're just seeing a still of him moving. All right, okay. Fair enough. So I'll go when you it. look at runners... The legs look sometimes wrong. Yeah. Or gangly. Or, yeah, because apart from the legs, it's another great image of the Hulk. The bullets are just bouncing off him. And he's crushing a gun in one hand. Mm. So it is. It's it's quite a good image, albeit there's lots of destruction going on. Oh yeah, 26 people were killed in that. Were they? So let's send him off to space. Let's send him off to space, yeah. Pretend we're the Illuminata. Um, the conversation between Coulson and Hill, both ported over from the Avengers movies, very funny, with the discussion of possible Hulk leads actually being a genuine earthquake, an Iron Man fight with Blaster. Come on, that was funny. Mm. It doesn't explain how Blaster got out of the negative zone. I thought Blaster could only exist in the negative zone, or I'm misremembering old Fantastic Four comics. He just did. Alright, fair enough. Or maybe he doesn't anymore. Yeah. I'm not sure what I think about comics Coulson. How is he different from film Coulson, other than being alive? Well, he's alive in the films now. He's, he's not yet. He's got his own TV show. Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s not heard yet, he's still dead. <laughs> what did I say in the cinema? When we were watching The Avengers, what did I say to your mum in the cinema? Um, I don't know. He's not dead. Okay. That's what I said to her. Okay. When she was the can kill Phil I said he's not Hiding dead. My tear, though. That's all I said. Josh, you bastard, you had to. He's not dead. Who was right? Um Who's your daddy? Well he's still dead. <laughs> Until Legend of Shield does. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, I, I'm I'm not sure I think about him, but then on the other hand there are loads of characters who started off in films and such and Yeah, and have been ported. Jimmy Olsen started off in the radio series. Go on. He's such a great <laughs> a 
fictional characters. Sure, Jimmy there's Olsen. nothing wrong with Jimmy Olsen. Uh, Banner's appearance in the final panel of this page, complete with brown leather bag, seems to be a little nod to the Bill Bixby version of the character. I like his mirrored shades and his shaved head as well, mm. which is a good way of the first capturing. time I read that um, in the preview, yeah, I think that was the last page of the preview, with the exception of the double page spread later on. Alright, so they skip the next couple of pages out. When I was reading that, I thought that was Phil Coulson. Because it looks like him. It it does look more like Clark Gregg than it looks like what I remember Bruce Banner looks like. So yes, Mm. you're absolutely right, art-wise. But, I mean, maybe he's dyed his hair light brown. He is on the run from the law. So in addition to having it crew cut, he's dyed it. It's possible. I guess. As a no prize. he's looking out windows as well. Yeah. That's why he's got mirrored shirts. Yeah. Because he pretends he's in Top Gun. <laughs> he likes to live in the danger zone. He does, yes. <laughs> At page four, we've got a chicken fried pork chop. Delicious. It's like being in Scotland, isn't it? Well, how do you make a chicken fried pork chop? You drop it in a fat fryer. Oh, right. I just think they make chicken... Oh, chicken fried. Chicken fried Mars bars. In Scotland, where they have fried Snickers bars and yeah, fried yeah. Mars bars. So when they say everything tastes like chicken, mm. that's because... Everything is. in Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> or oh, Scotland. <laughs> oh, dear God, we're going to hell. Uh, Banner's casual Maria Hill, fancy meeting you here, is a very funny line. Or I thought it was. Yeah. Uh, Banner's interestingly characterised in this issue. He's not snarky, per but se. I read him as a Mark Wade character. Did you? You know how you can tell when a writer has written a character? Yeah. Well, I read this as a Mark Wade character. See, he's a lot more confident in this issue than we've seen him of late. Yeah. Although we've not seen a lot of Banner recently, have we? He's not in Planet Hulk at all, is he? Planet Hulk. Yeah, I don't remember him being in World War Hulk at all. Oh, right. Banner on his own. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he has quite a dry wit in this. Again, so this felt more like the Ed Norton version of the Hulk. Certainly more than Matt Ruffalo. Oh, yeah, so someone in Matt Creator's taste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, see, I didn't get any particular Wade-isms from this, but I don't get Wade-isms from Wade's work. I can tell Peter David's work. I can tell Mark Miller's work. Mm-hmm. For the most part, I can tell Grant Morrison's. For the most part? For the most part, I can <laughs> tell Grant Morrison's. Warren Ellis's, I can tell. Jeff Loeb's, I can normally tell. Mm. But Wade, for me, always disappears into his characters. What do you see in it that's specifically Wade? It's... His characters are written as Mark Wade superheroes. Marvel superheroes is different from his DC superheroes, and it depends on the story as well. His characters are funny. It depends on what I'm reading. I don't get Wade-isms from, say, Kingdom Come. Right. But I do get Wade-isms from Daredevil and Hulk. Right. Okay, fair enough. I don't, but to each his own. Uh, page five, one of the many times Wade will play with expectations as Banner is first knocked by a patron of the diner, and then has hot coffee spilt on him. Did you hear dun, 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 here, or is that just me? I did, but it fades quickly, because it's supposed to. Because it's supposed to, yeah. We're, we're playing with the idea that he's going to hulk out here, and then he doesn't. Smash up all 872 
people of well, Bendis would have a field day with that wouldn't <laughs> page 7 Banner being pissed off that Tony Stark and Reed Richards will be remembered for genius intellects whilst he who is every bit as intelligent will be lucky to have Hulk smash on his tombstone it's played for both laughs and sympathy. It's always been Banner's lot that he's the guy who turns into the Hulk, not a super smart guy who designed revolutionary armour. It's an interesting hook for the character that he's finally decided to stop trying to rid himself of the Hulk and concentrate on more productive te- ways to spend his time. Again, this fits in with the Avengers movie where Whedon had Banner more tightly wound, but helping others rather than constantly seeking to rid himself of the Hulk. What I liked about this was the obvious jealousy. But yeah. he didn't come off as a whiner. No. No, I agree totally. He doesn't come off as somebody who's bitter mm. about the fact that Tony Stark is renowned for his intellect and Reed Richards is renowned for his intellect. He basically comes across as someone who realises, not big-headedly, yeah. that he is just as smart as those two, but he's wasting his life just trying to cure the Hulk. That's. Well, I've only ever read this first issue. Have you not carried on reading this? Well, now you put them away before I get to read them. Get them out, you know what they are. <laughs> I don't know your alphabetical system. They're under H. Really? For Hulk. Are they not under I? No, they're under H for Hulk. <laughs> Deal with it. Or T for No, <laughs> they're under H for Hulk. But I really like how it's all Bruce Banner. Because one thing you start noticing with a lot of Hulk stories is that it's all Hulk. And when Banner is in it, he's whining that he wants to get rid of the Hulk. Yeah, there is... I think the difficulty with writing a Hulk story is you have to make Banner interesting. Because otherwise the audience is just uh, going, yawn, 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 but oh, Hulk! A lot of the time, it's all Hulk anyway. Yeah, even back in the, the 70s, there mm. were entire issues where you didn't even see Banner. Whereas I think Banner is an inte- integral part of the story. So not only did I find it like refreshing that not only was Banner in it for more than three Most quarters. of the book. Most of this the, book is Banner, isn't it? But that it was an interesting new character development. Mm, and Banner's interesting in this story. Yeah. He's not dull. Yeah, I agree entirely with that. He's not bitter about Tony or Reed. He may be a bit jealous of them, mm. but this has made him realise that he's squandering his time, basically. So, yes, it was very good. Uh, page nine. Bruce shows Maria what information he has and who the man is that will uh, put it into play if he disappears. We don't see that information Nick or Fury. who that person is. Do you think? Yeah. You reckon? Yeah. White well, Nick Fury. Hill is suitably impressed. Yeah. So it could very well be Nick Fury. Because Hill is very impressed by that. So yeah, you could be right. Yeah, maybe white Nick Fury's come out from hiding. <laughs> As, when did he go into hiding? I know he was in hiding in Civil War. I have no idea. When's he come back out? Because he's now got a son yeah. in regular continuity Arr. that stole my idea. Can you imagine the miniseries called Furies? White <laughs> Nick Fury versus Black Nick Fury. No, not Black versus. versus. Working son. together would be awesome. I don't want to see oh, no, no, versus. That's the sequel. Oh, right. The first one's called Furies. Where they're against each other. The second one's Fury. Because of a misunderstanding, yeah, no yeah, doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. All right. Yeah. Oh. See, after being raised on a bitter, lonely mo- uh, mum who's, you know, he's been left by um, her husband and his father, he then Keep goes going. to hunt down Nick Fury, right? Right. So he hunts him down, and then he finds him, and he says, Right, you, why did you call me Sue? <laughs> <laughs> his real name's Sue Fury. <laughs> yeah. 
And then they have a big fight with them because it's a um, um, a team up. They of course, put, they put their differences aside and, and then go and shoot people and together. A common goal. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah I'm go ahead story. Yeah, totally. Come soon, I'll buy you first, fucker. <laughs> uh, page ten. Aiming the Hulk at a problem is an extrapolation of ideas from the TV series, where the Hulk would always be focused on the subject of Banner's ire. And the Ed Norton movie, where Banner himself suggests the abomination may be taken care of if the Hulk is aimed directly at the problem. So it is tying into people who've seen the films but never read the comic before, mm-hmm. which I quite like. Page 11, Hill takes Banner up on his offer by clobbering him with the two before. I thought this was the only misstep of the issue. I really did. I know Wade's trying to get us away from the stuff we've seen a thousand times before, but not seeing the Hulk out was just a huge disappointment. Was it? Yeah, I never get bored of Hulk what outs. What I took from it, though, that confused me a little was... Okay, Maria Hill just slapped Banner over the head with a big piece of wood, and the first thing Hulk does is go, Grr, where should I go? And not turn around and smash her in the face. Yeah, that was a bit confusing, because Banner's talking out through the entire issue of aiming the Hulk. How does smacking him over the head aim him at anyone other than the person who just yeah. smacked him over the head? That doesn't aim him at the thinker, does it? No. That aims him at Maria Hill. Who's not... A thinker. No. So, yes, that was... I would like an explanation for how that worked. How did she then get the Hulk to go and take out the mad thinker? Mm. When surely his first inclination would be to turn around and go, Hulk hurt! (laughs) Hulk smash, puny woman! That would be... I'll throw her into a lake, because Hulk doesn't kill. Kick her into a lake. Yeah. Uh, Page 12, the thinker, again, is characterised very well, as verbose and anal retentive as usual. His working out of everything to the second, often irritated, is well done here, especially as pages 13 and 14, a two-page spread, show that even he can't think of everything. What do you think of that two-page spread? I like that it's in the centre of the book, so you can actually rip it out, put it up as a poster if you wanted to. <laughs> I, I like it. It's a really good Francis issue, but... It is. Uh, and everything seems proportional as well. However, it does have my problem with uh, use work. Why? It's far too many veins... Um, I don't know if you've seen... And he does seen... really weird veins that go from the neck to the fists. Well, if you do that, there's your vein. I guess, but how... He looks like he's trying to keep a turd in his tents in that much. <laughs> and that's the thing with all of uh, Yu's characters, they all have that many veins that make them look so tense. I don't understand why he's, he's the Hulk, he has no eyeballs. He's that angry. Oh, okay. That his eyeballs he's roll into the back of his head. White eyes of rage. Hum. You know, this was the last bit of the preview. It cuts from the conversation in the diner from when Hulk shows up to here. So in the preview, it reads like, hey, oh! It reads like he's Hulk that in the diner. Yeah, all and right. then all these soldiers are coming out of nowhere. Fair enough. And then someone's halfway through the dialogue, so... And suddenly the Hulk appears. Yeah. Saves wasting 20 minutes for him to show up. I guess. Uh, the fight scene is wonderful, with the Hulk saving the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents from the Thinker, and we get a the madder Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets moment, and the Thinker realising he can't calculate the impossible, and the Hulk's strength is off the charts. I like how the art shows all the speed and the impact and everything, and how this read to me, like, the Hulk versus Gundam Wing. Did it? Yeah. Alright. Why? Well, because Francis Yu does lots of mech designs. 
and he does them very well. Right. So because all these are very... And the thinker's outfit, ostensibly Ultron technology, does look a bit well, mecha-godzilla. Well, they do look blatantly Japanese. Yeah. There is that vibe to them. So, it, it, yeah, it's a Gundam Wing crossover. Fair enough. Did you like it as a Gundam Wing crossover? I did, it was neat. Fair enough. Uh, the fight scene goes on for the last half of the issue. And it all culminates in Hill accepting the offer, and essentially the status quo for the series, at least initially, is set in motion. I thought this was a great first issue. I really did. twist at the end. What was the little twist at the end? Where she's thinking, ah, where's he buggered off to? Let's find him, check all the dates, and then he just shows up. And he's just waiting for her. Yeah. I like as well, Banner's not wearing any clothes when he hulks back. Yeah. So it's like his pants stay on when he's the Hulk. But they come off when he's, he's stretched them too much as Bruce Banner. Maybe that's why he gets his robo-pants on the cover. Possibly. His robo-pants don't... I hadn't considered that. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, I thought this was everything a first issue should be. Wade successfully takes the past and uses it as a springboard for the future. Banner's proposal makes sense. And even Maria Hill can see that. And thus the stage is set for the next step in the Hulk story. Whilst this will obviously read well in trade format, Wade at least tries to tell a story that works as a one-off, with subplots giving the reader a satisfying experience. User art manages to mix the look of pencils and paint, what's not always successful. His Hulk is suitably impressive and visually interesting. Visually interesting, sorry. All things considered, I thought this was a great start to Marvel Now's Hulk strip. What did you think? I thought it was very, very good. Has it made you want to read any more? It has. Because this is a good story, this. Mm -hmm. I'm thoroughly enjoying this. Uh, They're currently in Asgard. Walt Simonson's doing the art. Duh. No, it's good. Walt Simonson art. Is it? Yeah, I think so. Um, There is a letters page, which I do like about this book, but obviously it's the first issue, so there's no letters. So it's a text piece from Mark Panicia, and then some sketches of the Hulk by Lanil, and then plugs for some incredible Hulk trade paperbacks. And then uh, another page showing us the variant cover and the regular cover of next week. I like the variant, mm. where it's actual issue two of The Incredible Hulk from 1960-something. Mm. I thought that was quite good. It was good, that one, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Excellent first issue. Heartily recommended. Um, this was the first issue where I actively paid attention to the AR app. Personally, yeah, I found it unwieldy and cumbersome. And while some of Wade's insights were interesting, I'd rather have a text page job. The actual app itself is a bit faulty. Yeah, you have to fight with it to get it to work. You can't really read it if you're trying to use your iPad. No. I suppose if you read it and then go back. Yeah. Anything else on that? No. No, no, it was jolly good, wasn't it? Um, But a lot of the Hulk stuff recently has been very good that I've read. Planet Hulk and World War Hulk. And the Red Hulks. And the Red Hulks. But then Jason Aaron did a Hulk. Yeah, I didn't like that, but I like Jason Aaron. I like the concept, but it wasn't delivered very well. No, I read the first couple of issues that series and just thought, no, this isn't for me. Hmm. Who did the art? Was it Wills Potassio? No, it was um, I Want to Be Jim Lee. Uh, Mark Silvestri. Right, Mark Silvestri won. Yes. (laughs) That is his middle name. (laughs) I Want to Be Jim Lee. Uh, our second Marvel Now book for tonight is an example of Marvel hedging the bets, but actually rather doing us a favour. 
Daredevil, The Man Without Fear was a book that had very recently relaunched, and the feeling within the Marvel Brain Trust was that Daredevil captured the ethos of what now was trying to achieve under the current creative team. Axel Alonso was adamant when embarking upon now that there would be a strong creative vision behind behind each title. And if there's one thing DD has not been shot of in its run, it's a strong creative vision. Normally a bleak and depressing one. DD was from the beginning a book that struggled with its identity. Starting out with a crime noir origin story, the book quickly became a Spider-Man wannabe and vacillated between outrageous comedy hijinks and superhero soap opera. When Frank Miller took over in 1979, he returned the book to its crime noir beginnings and through two distinctive runs, firstly from 1979 to 1982, and then again with the groundbreaking Born Again in 1985, Miller made a career out of making Daredevil's life, and by extension the life of his alter ego Matt Murdock, miserable. Further writers added to the misery, and when Carl Kessel tried to lighten the book up, he was almost lynched. Kevin Smith killed his ex-girlfriend Karen Page. Bendis outed his secret to the world and had his wife declared insane, and Ed Brubacker put him in jail. Andy Diggle made him the kingpin of crime, and after Matt had finally had enough of all this misery, he quit. And Black Panther took over as Daredevil. Enter Mark Wade. Once again... Mm. <laughs> okay. Wade's belief was that Murdoch had been through enough and wanted to tweak the adventure-to-depression ratio a bit and let Matt win again. He had Murdoch and his law partner Foggy Nelson rebrand themselves as lawyers that help people represent themselves after Matt's outing as Daredevil caused them too many problems in the courtroom. The one element Wade did play up was that as many people as there were that did believe Matt was Daredevil, there were tons that didn't believe it because Murdoch was legally blind. And how could a blind guy be Daredevil? He reintroduced a rogues gallery and some superheroic fun, but still played Matt's life for real with superior characterization and plots. The art, initially by Paolo Rivera and Marcos Martin, was sublime. They introduced a new way of interpreta- interpreting Matt's radar sense, the super sense he has that enables him to navigate, and his enhanced other senses, such as touch and smell, have also been wonderfully reinterpreted. As mentioned above, Alonso was so happy with the creative direction of Daredevil, he simply branded issue 23 as the first Marvel Now issue, rather than starting with a new number one. It came out on February 20th, 2013, and has a wonderful cover by Chris Samney. It's almost a number one type cover befitting its status as part of the new publishing initiative, with Daredevil swinging across the DD logo that is in flames, similar iconography to that used in the DD movie by Mark Stephen Johnson. What do you think of that one, Michael? I really like it. It's simple. I was just going to say it's simple but effective, mm-hmm. isn't it? That is out of the film, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The DD logo on fire. With the, the lighter. The yeah. Match, yeah, and you're like, so Daredevil wasted time. <laughs> putting petrol out in two double D's, did he? Yeah. And yes, it looks cool. Daredevil's really got too much spare time. Like, you know, because he's blind, it looks like a C and a Yeah. Because <laughs> he's blind, he, got it. he did it in Braille. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been funnier. And everyone's going, what does that mean? And then they have to get some blind man. Like, is it follow the trace of the fire? <laughs> Ow! <laughs> Daredevil, that's what it is. <laughs> Can I go now? Um... The story is untitled. No title for this issue. Unless it's Stiltman staked by Daredevil. No, I think I don't think so. 
Um, it's written by Mark Wade with art by Chris Samney, colour art by Javier Rodriguez, and lettered by Joe Caramagna. It was edited by Stephen Wacker. In an unknown location, a shadowy man continues to experiment on people as he tries to imbue them with the same heightened senses and radar abilities of Daredevil. It's not going well. Elsewhere, whilst awaiting the results of Foggy Nelson's battery of tests, Matt Murdock in his superheroic guise as Daredevil, the man without fear, has taken Foggy out for a nighttime view of the city. Stops at the Chrysler building and various other hot spots around the city are the order of the day as Daredevil hopes to take Foggy's mind off the tests. However, the night is interrupted when Daredevil hears a disturbance at the Rominco Tower, where future mayoral 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 Future wannabe Murr <laughs> candidate Ron Rominio is Rominico is holding his fundraiser. DD promises Foggy he'll be at the hospital for the results and takes his leave. Daredevil, who doesn't have a high opinion of Rominico, arrives and engages the party crashes, but is shocked they smell of the same chemicals that caused his blindness and hypersenses. Whilst the radar and heightened abilities cause Dee Dee some grief, he also knows the best way to combat them and stops the party crashes. However, three escape and Dee Dee takes after them on foot and manages to take all three combatants down. He arrives just in time for the doctor to give Foggy the results. It's bad news. Foggy Nelson has cancer. That's not quite a dun 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 moment, is it? Not really. Mm. Um, I have to say I'm quite the fan of the recap pages in the Steve Wacker edited books in this and Spider-Man. The recaps take the form of a Daily Bugle front page, complete with banner headlines and photos. There are times when these recaps feature information that a newspaper couldn't know, but that's just me being nitpicky. Wacker also uses these pages to plug his other books, whilst giving them their own headlines in the paper, an approach I quite like. Here there are stories relating to events happening in Captain Marvel, Venom and Superior Spider-Man. Of course the main headline focuses on Daredevil's recent battle with Stiltman, and the revelation that Foggy Nelson has been in and out of hospital recently for tests. I don't know why that'd be in the paper. But maybe it'd be in the um, gossip bit. Possibly. The little bit down the side of the webpage that nobody cares about. Yeah. Where it's talking about a Cardassian or somebody from Real Housewives or some other... Cardassian, Real Housewives, Foggy Nelson. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Foggy. (laughs) Wouldn't wish him in that company, would you? Not really. You'd be wishing he had cancer. Oh! And we just went to a very dark place. (laughs) Uh, artist Chris Samney is rapidly becoming a talent to watch out for. His clean, cartoony style fits right in with this comic's aesthetic. But, as with all art of this kind, McGuinness, Waringo, Parabet, Marcos Martin and others, the detail has to be there. There is no hiding behind superfluous speed lines or clenched teeth. I thought you'd have something to say about the art in this book. I liked it. No, just for the cartoony feel, really. I know, but it's kind of a realistic cartoony. And isn't it's it? nice for Daredevil. Yeah, I mean, we're used to Miller and, and then yeah. Lark. Michael Lark did it for the ages, only, didn't it? The only Daredevil I've ever read is the Frank Miller stuff. You never read the Bendis run? No. Oh. Um, but, again, like Hulk, I like Mark Wade's Breath of Fresh Air. Yeah, to, <laughs> to it, where it's new and it's happier. It's a much happier title than the Frank Miller one. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, and the art style reflects that. Yeah. It's just nice. 
Yeah, it's, Daredevil's nice. It's it's consistently followed this same art style despite having changes of artists, like I said at the top of the show. Um, page two, did you notice that one of the shops is Everett's? Which I presume is a reference to... What was his name? Bill. Bill Everett, yes. Bill Everett created Namor, didn't he? Did he? He was a writer on Daredevil for a while, but I don't think he created Daredevil. But, you know, it was just a shout-out to him, I presume. Uh, page two, there's some wonderful new wrinkles added to Dee Dee's origin story, which is recapped over the first two pages. It, it doesn't contradict the original, proving once again the Kerr Wade puts into rethinking the details of the story. Here, the driver of the truck that is about to run over the old man is distracted by his mobile phone, which obviously wouldn't have existed in the 60s original, whilst the radioactive waste that spills over Matt blinding him and giving him his powers is being transported illegally. Two wonderful little touches, one that answers an age-old question of why this obviously dangerous goop was being transported through the streets of New York, and given a plausible, realistic reason for why the driver was perhaps not paying as much attention as he should have. The transport in the waste illegally. I don't know. I'm just pointing that out. I like this opening sequence. It works totally as an introduction to Marvel now, doesn't it? Well, it's an origin sequence, Mm. and then there's the twist which applies to the rest of the story... Which is, in hindsight, is pretty clear because of the colour of the clothes they were in. Yeah, it ties into the story that somebody, who we don't know yet, Mm. as the book is unfolding, is trying to create another Daredevil. Yeah. And failing. Because there's that creepy little twist when you get to the film set. Yeah, it's it's very, very good. Very, very good indeed. And there's also the thing, though, that you get the goop all over him and he remembers the smell, which plays into the story later on. Yeah. Which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, page th- two through three, as Michael's mentioned, the entire recap, uh, though, is told from Matt's point of view, mm. giving the reader a good look at what the last thing Matt ever saw was. That's all from his POV, isn't and it? And then the black panel. And then the black panel as he goes blind. It's excellently well done. Really, really good. A two-page origin recap that totally works. Mm-hmm. Really impressive. On multiple levels. On multiple levels. It works as an origin recap. It works as part of this story. Mm-hmm. And it works for showing us just Matt's point of view of it. I don't think we've ever seen that before. Although you couldn't really do an issue with Daredevil from Matt's point of view normally, could you? It'd just be a black page. Oh, it would be really cool. Because think about... As now that they depict the radar sense. Yeah. So oh, an entire like, issue from Matt's point of view. Over to issue one. Yeah. That would actually be really cool, though. Yeah. Because they could totally do that, all facetiousness aside. Yeah. Because the way they reinterpreted the radar sense in this series is brilliant. That would work really well in 3D as well. Yeah. In so much as 3D works. Yeah. Which I don't like. But I'd, I'd be interested to see it. Why aren't we working at Marvel? Because <laughs> they don't want to. Guys, we can make... 3D work. <laughs> yeah, the shoes of Daredevil with just his radar sense yeah. would totally work in 3D. That would actually be awesome. Uh, page 4, Matt's monologue continues as he points out that there were variables that played into how he got his powers in a way that would be difficult to replicate, which again plays into the whole story. Wade mentions that the amount of radioactive waste that hit his eyes, the speed his truck was moving, the truck was moving, sorry. Even the vagaries of Matt's own body chemistry all played a part in what happened and makes this kind of thing a rarity, even in the Marvel Universe. I do remember Roger Stern did this in an issue of Amazing Spider-Man once, 
where he implied that the radioactive spider that bit Peter Parker interacted with something unique in Parker's body chemistry that caused Spider-Man to be. I actually prefer these one-in-a-million kind approaches to this stuff, which is probably why I dislike a lot of legacy heroes. It would take a lot of time and effort to replicate what happened to Peter or Matt, as ultimately they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they were the wrong people. Naturally, they became heroes. Mm-hmm. So maybe they were the right people in the right place at the right time. Exactly. Page 7, lovely splash page of DD doing his best um, Batman impression. Stood atop a gargoyle on the Chrysler building, Daredevil's red costume really stands out against the greys of the building and the dark blue sky. It's something we've seen a thousand times before, but like Hulk outs and Batman crouching on a gargoyle in Gotham, it never gets boring. Mm-hmm. There are some things that do need to be in most issues. Lovely listener, and this is one of them. Page 9, as a kid... I used to really love the shots of New York in the Steve Ditko Spider-Man strips. More than anything, those strips informed my idea of what New York looks like with all the skyscrapers and steam and those wacky water towers that seem to be on every single rooftop. I hope to get there one day mm. and actually see one of those water towers in real life. <laughs> Take a photo of you in front of it. In front of a water and tower. And then everyone in New York's like, what? It's but just water towers. Statue of Liberty, the Chrysler Building, Times Square... You took a picture of yourself with a water tower. <laughs> totally, dude. Nick, I, I'd get a photo next to one of those vents that has steam coming out of it. Your yellow all, cap. They've always that fascinated has to be a me. yellow cap, though. Well, there's plenty of yellow caps, but I want to see the picture of the steam. There's the steam coming out the uh, out the pavement. Yeah. Um, until then, however, we have Chris Samney's New York, which is very Ditko-esque. And nowhere is this more beautifully represented than in two specific panels, in the scene where D.D. is giving Foggy the grand tour. Page 8, panel 3, shows Daredevil carrying Foggy across the city, and as the reader's eye follow the panel from left to right, the nighttime cityscape blurs with the lights just becoming a mess of reds, blues, yellows and whites. It perfectly captures the feeling of motion and speed. That one, though. I know. Oh, that was awesome. I love the neon lights in the background. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. I would pull that off. The second great panel is again page 10, panel 4. Dee Dee and Foggy sit atop one of those self-same water towers. The characters are in shadow, and the smoke rises from the rooftops as pigeons hover around and sit in the foreground. I just love that panel. I love that page, the dialogue on it. Oh, yeah, the dialogue's hysterical. The last panel especially. The dialogue's really good. I love the lighting, though. They're talking about what's been happening in the previous 23 issues and that somebody's obviously marked Daredevil. Um, Somebody's got a noose around my neck, but who? What? Could it? Could it be? Spit it out. Think about it, Matt. It's obvious which one of your enemies has come out of the woodwork lately, after years of obscurity. The last one you'd expect, Matt. I know who the mastermind is who's after you. It's Stiltman. And that line, though, is punctuated by the fact that Foggy's all lit mysteriously. Yeah. And the film noir. Like he's just revealed something really, really serious and a major plot point. And then on the next page... And you page. turn the page and they piss themselves laughing. <laughs> <laughs> the very idea it could be still man. Which just makes the ending all that much worse. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lovely little panel. Absolutely. Um, my issue with this is the same one that I had with the film, in many ways. It's my understanding that the radioactive waste gave Matt heightened senses. Mm-hmm. And the radar sense, but it didn't enhance his strength. So essentially he's Batman, isn't he? Yeah. Essentially. 
A gifted and well-trained athlete in hand-to-hand fights, but possessed of no extra normal abilities in that department. Yet here he's carrying Foggy around town as if he weighs nothing. Foggy has to be quite heavy. He's, he's been working out. Foggy's losing a lot of weight. You're right. So the number 300 probably signifies Foggy's IQ and his weight. Maybe. Hmm. Fair enough. Uh, we've already mentioned that page 11's hysterical. Dee Dee and Foggy musing who's screwing up Matt's life and he comes up with Stiltman. Um, it's neat because in the previous issue, Stiltman was not a laughable B-list villain. Mm. Wade handled him as a credible threat. But I get that they were just mocking the idea that Stiltman could pull this off. Yeah. Which was quite funny. So he still wore stilts? Yes, he still has his <laughs> electro, electro stilts. I like Stiltman. <laughs> I think Stiltman's great. Not have a word said against him. Um, there's also a decent nod to slash piss take off Born Again. Yeah. Nice work, Stiltman. You shouldn't have signed it. <laughs> Which was hysterical. <laughs> I do love the idea that Foggy's crying with laughter. Yeah. Which was just was brilliant. Uh, page 12, you've got a magnificent couple of fluid panels of DD jumping off the water tower backwards and then th- swinging through the city that are just awesome absolutely fantastic stuff uh, page 13 since this new series began we've had a number of different artists putting a lot of effort into shaking up how they depict DD's radar sense and Samney gives it a go here the way DD's senses work has always been a little bit murky but now what DD sees I've got to stop calling him DD because it just reminds me of Dexter's <laughs> lab. What Daredevil sees is lines, and people are a darker red line than objects, like they have a heat signature, whilst objects have lines that are further apart. And it's, I'm not describing it very well, but it's a really neat visual trick, perhaps a nod to the movie, which I thought made a credible stab at depicting DD's radar sense. How would you describe that? The people are there, but they're all drawn in lines. And the lines curve depending on what they're doing and stuff and the distance away the from him. Yeah. I, I think how they've redesigned his radar sense for this series have been exceptional. Mm. Really, really good job they've done, haven't it? Also interesting on this page, the internal monologue that states that in a confined situation like this one, where there is a lot of people, noise and confusion, Daredevil's enhanced hearing is actually in a disadvantage because he has to concentrate harder to block out the extraneous noises. Yeah. So I did like the idea that his powers can also be a hindrance mm. in certain situations. I thought that was quite clever. Get the creepy bit where he sticks his thumbs in the right eye in somebody's eye socket. But there's no eyes though. Did you not think that these guys here, the guys that are, are hopped up on whatever like it is, the mutants, the mutants from Dark Knight Returns, yeah, yeah, exactly where I was going with it. I wonder if that was an intentional nod. Maybe given that Frank Miller's um, relationship the, with... the eye thing? Yeah, it's the uh, the funny little sunglasses that they're wearing, mm. but they don't have any eyepieces anymore. Yeah. Um, page 15, Daredevil's realisation that the people he's fighting stink of the chemical that blinded him is nicely handled, as this is what helps him take down the gang. Daredevil, knowing his own abilities also knows his own limitations and targeting the hypersenses with pain which can overwhelm someone to whom everything is heightened and then firing a gun near the ear of the remaining gang member to incapacitate him is inspired. Sam Nee changes up his art style as well giving the DD fight scenes a feeling of David Mazzuccielli. Mm. Yeah, I like the gun bit as well. 
Yeah, the gun bit was great, wasn't it? Mm. He points the gun at the guy's head, and you think he's going to blow his brains off, and then he just moves it slightly to the right and just fires, so he's um, deafened. Mm. Which, which was brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Love the scene were also the escaped gang member ducks when Daredevil throws something at him. Yeah. And Daredevil goes, of course he ducks, he's got radar sense. Yeah. Oh, that was genius. Absolutely genius. And all the time this is happening, you've got the ticking clock, again, as he needs to get to Foggy's hospital appointment. Which was fun. Mm. Um, Foggy Nelson's phone has a great picture of he and Matt around the time that Foggy grew a pawn stash. <laughs> And the, I love the picture of Matt taking the mick out of him. Yeah. He's got his finger underneath his nose like he's got a moustache as well. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, the final two pages, though, are just heartbreaking. Yeah, the final the final three. Um, were, were Matt... Well, they're still joking on, on that page. That it's the last the two pages. That makes it the more heartbreaking. Yeah, that just before they get the news, they just joshing with each other and, and having a bit of a laugh and then his monologue about the heartbeat yeah was oh it was just fantastic Matt knows before the doctor says anything mm. th- what the news is that Foggy's got cancer I read it as though Matt found out when we did because he was optimistic and thought nothing was wrong right because he's hearing the calm heartbeat thinking it's the doctor when actually he swapped the heartbeats around the calm one's Foggy Whereas the panicky one's the Doctor. Yeah. Is how I read it. Because they've already mentioned that the Doctor's only about, like, Doogie Howser. Yeah. So he's very, very young Doctor, but apparently top of his class. Um, it's always effective when a fictional character get a real illness. And there's just something very affecting about cancer. It's an illness that can come from nowhere and has probably affected everybody at some point, even indirectly. It's quite a brave storyline, and I do have faith that Mark Wade will handle it with some sensitivity. It's that last page, though. Yeah, especially now, man. we've had the the whole issue, of which is essentially just a, a buddy buddy bromance movie. Yeah, of Matt and Foggy just tacking the mick, and again, there's hardly any dialogue, hardly any dialogue on the last page. It's like the Doctor doesn't have to say something. And I love that Matt puts his hand on Foggy's shoulder before he does. It's sequential storytelling at its finest, mm-hmm. in that you don't have to use words to depict the emotion of the scene. And it's one of the things a lot of hot artists, I don't want to pick on Jim Lee, I would like to see if Jim Lee could pull that off. Because I think Jim Lee's good, and I do like Jim Lee's stuff. But can he do character models? Yeah, I'm always more of the opinion Jim Lee's good at big splashy action and splash pages. Which is what he does. Whether or not he could pull something like this off mm. would be a test as to whether he's a good sequential artist or not, and I'd love to see him do it. I'd love to see him prove me wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't think some of the other image guys could pull this off, mm. to be honest with you. Well, it's got no feet on it, so... Well, there is that. Um, I, an excellent issue. It could almost be a first issue, if not for the continuing plot threads of the gang and Daredevil's senses, and the continuing subplots regarding the new setup of Nelson and Murdoch, and who it is who's, again, trying to destroy Daredevil's life. Um, there's a lot of story threads that D- Wade has been spinning since the beginning, but he, he balances them all perfectly, and this feels like it could be a standalone issue. 
even though it isn't. It's part of the overall arc. Sam Nee's art is excellent, and again, Mark Wade does an excellent job of making the story work as part of the whole and as a standalone issue. What did you think of that one? I thought it was very, very good. Because I can't believe you're not reading Daredevil either. Daredevil's brilliant. Daredevil's up there with Hawkeye as the best book Marvel's currently publishing. The last Daredevil I read was when they tied up the whole Fantastic Four thing. Right. And he just escapes from Laveria. Right, when Doctor Doom... Doesn't show up Captured him. it It was Doctor Doom's lackey. Yeah, because he goes to like, well, what I liked about that was he went to Latveria, but Doom's never in it. <laughs> Doom doesn't go to Latveria. Doom's got other stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. Doom doesn't need to be in Latveria, dude. Latveria runs itself without Doom mm. because Latveria understands the consequences of not obeying Doom. Mm-hmm. It's the rest of the world that Doom needs to bring under his thrall. Latveria, he's got from Latveria running. We've already know he makes the trains run on time in Latveria. <laughs> he's got the health care. He's got the schools. He knows what he's doing. Maybe we should let him in charge. <laughs> See what happens. Uh, all told, these issues are an excellent introduction to the Marvel Now initiative. Neither rely on you having any prior knowledge of the characters, but use past events as a springboard to the future. Alonzo has also, so far, been true to his word, and there hasn't been any revolving door of creators like that that we've seen at DC. We'll see how this holds up next time when we look at two more Marvel Now books. The divisive Captain America and the critically acclaimed Hawkeye. So that about wraps it up for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. I did? Very fun indeed. We left it on a bit of a downer though. Not really. The issue itself was excellent. It's not... The ending may have been a bit of a downer, but the issue itself was brilliant and well done. Mm-hmm. And we approve wholeheartedly. All right, we'll be back next week with more Marvel Now. See you later. Bye-bye. Goodbye. find work for Idle Hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. 
New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.